Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. We are everyday people following Jesus every day. Amen. Thank you, worship team. Uh, before we get into the message today, a couple things that I want to uh, let you know about. Um, uh, one, Ali mentioned that we have uh, a, a church app. Um, uh, if you download from your app store, whatever that may be, the uh, Church Center app, uh, you can tell them that you're part of East Hills, um, and you will get to see things like our prayer group, uh, where we share prayer requests and concerns, and um, uh, where uh, you can uh, be lifting up the other folks in the church family. You'll also find information about all of the events that we have going on, uh, things that you've heard about already. A couple more I want to tell you about. Uh, there's a class that one of our elders, Bob Casey, is leading uh, starting, and not this week, but next week, on discerning truth. Uh, so check that out. Um, and then want to uh, let you know uh, that we have an event coming up at the end of the month that we are excited about. Um, and and We've been talking about how, as people who are trying to follow Jesus every day, part of that means we want to be connecting with the people who are around us every day, including connecting with our neighbors. Now, for some of you, that's super easy uh, because, I don't know, you're extroverted and you just walk over to their house and say hi, and I don't understand how that works, but good for you. For a lot of us, the, uh, the idea of connecting with our neighbors is really hard, especially the idea of connecting with other young families. It feels like we are in an era where, uh, as, as parents of young children, we're told to just keep them away from everybody else as much as possible. Um, and, and we're busy doing 18 different things at once. And, and so we're connecting at those places maybe, but not really with our neighbors. Wouldn't it be amazing if there was, say, a night where all of the young families came out of their houses, walked around the neighborhood, maybe, uh, connected with people on purpose. You'd probably have to pay them with candy, but I think we could start this trend where people left their house. Okay, so that's coming up at the end of the month. Uh, Halloween is coming, people will be out and about, and here's what we would like to do. Uh, we would love to uh, start some East Hills glow sites. And what we mean by that is uh, that we would love to have uh, you, if you would be so inclined, if you live at a place where there are trick-or-treaters. So I get it. Some of us live way out. Some of us live on one-way streets with like five houses, not a lot of trick-or-treaters. We get that. If you are somebody who sees some trick-or-treaters, rather than just being a house that they walk up your hopefully lit driveway and knock on your door and ask for candy, what if in front of your house, in your front yard, <clears throat> on your sidewalk, in your driveway, You've got a table set up. <clears throat> Maybe it's got uh, apple cider on it, some sort of warm treat. Uh, it's a, you've got glow sticks. It's all lit up. There's a party happening in your front yard because people from church have gotten together and they're hanging out. And you invite people as they're walking past to stop by, get something warm because let's be real, it's the end of October in the western side of Washington, and and it's going to be likely wet and it's for sure going to be cold. So bless somebody in your neighborhood with something warm. Say hi, connect with them in some way. Take this opportunity uh, to connect with your 
neighbors. So if you are interested in uh, having a glow site at your house, get together with some friends, uh, sign up in the church app. If you're looking for more information about what exactly is a glow site, uh, you may have noticed as you walked in the back, there is a all glowed up table back there that uh, you can find more information about that, um, or you can go to uh, the, the website and, and check that out. So uh, we're, we're excited about those things coming up. You can uh, check out the app to get more information about that. Okay, uh, to get into the, uh, the message today, <clears throat> uh, I need to take us uh, to, let's see, can I get this going in the right direction? Maybe? Ooh, look at me and my power. Okay, uh, I... To get to today, I first need to have everybody climb in the Wayback Machine. We're going to go all the way back to 1995, which is a year that my kids are pretty sure we were still going around in horse and buggy, and all the pictures were black and white. I was 12. Uh, sorry if that bothers you. I was 12, and I uh, discovered contemporary Christian music for the first time. Uh, I was not following Jesus. I wasn't particularly interested in Jesus. I happened to come across it on the radio, and I thought, hey, they're singing about Jesus on the radio. My dad's into that Jesus stuff. I wonder if he would like this music. And it turns out it didn't sound enough like the Beach Boys or the Bee Gees for my dad. But uh, I got hooked, weirdly, on this music. Um, was thinking about this uh, this week, actually. Uh, that I, I had some of these albums memorized by, by the end of middle school. And I wouldn't say that I was following Jesus until my freshman year of high school, which makes me think that maybe God was up there going, I mean, any day, like you're listening to this, you're, you're singing along, like any day now would be great, but it took a little more oomph for me, I guess. <clears throat> so I got hooked uh, particularly uh, on a couple of albums that I will still argue uh, are, if not the best two, because last night I said the best two and people started tossing out other albums and I went, oh no, that one's really good too. Anyway, if not the best two, two of the best albums in, in modern music Period. And yes, that's an entirely biased statement. Uh, but uh, here I am, seventh grade Josh, getting completely stuck on uh, the Jars of Clay Flood album. For those of you who remember that one, yes, we, there we go. Um, and uh, um, and uh, DC Talks Jesus Freak album. Yes. Okay. So uh, I did not try to convince the worship pastor to do an entirely DC talk set this morning, but maybe I should have, given how many amens I just got. Anyway, we'll talk about it later. Uh, I, I don't know how to explain this to people under 25, so if those of you older 25, you'll, you'll just have to go with me here. Uh, when, when songs came out, um, they used to come out on this shiny round thing called a CD. Um, and, and they came and they, they were like a concept, really, like, like the music all flowed together. And they would do these interlude things where uh, they would have maybe talking at the beginning of a song or somewhere in the middle. Or you'd get to hear uh, some recording of their talking in the recording studio or whatever. Kind of, we kind of remember some of these things. Okay, so uh, in my very biased opinion, the Jesus Freak album was the best at this. They had an entire track that was a conversation with a lady named Miss Morgan. Now, I can't do Miss Morgan's accent, but I can't tell the story without doing a bad Miss Morgan accent. So I apologize for all of that ahead of time. But essentially, this was an interview 
with uh, a little old lady named Catherine Morgan who used to, as near as I can tell, live next door to an earlier version of DC Talk called The Goatees. And they're interviewing her about her experience living next to The Goatees. And, and she's telling a story of one particular day when they had a drummer show up to be a part of their garage band thing they had going on next door. And she said, I had that drummer for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And then I hollered over it, because she had to say hollered. I mean, she just, you just have to get that image. Okay, I hollered over at them that he better knock off that drumming. And Kevin hollered back. He said, Miss Morgan, that's a live drummer we've got over there today. And she said, if, if he hits that drum one more time, he's going to be a dead drummer. And that was the last I heard of that drummer that day. Um, and a couple years back, when uh, we went through a period of not meeting here, and then a couple months later, we did a couple months of not singing together, uh, we, we did not have live drummers. And we got to the point where we could have a live drummer again. And I kid you not, I walked back in on a Sunday morning, and the first thing I thought, and of course said out loud, was, we got a live drummer there today. Um, and nobody got the reference, but I'm sure Miss Morgan somewhere was cackling with me, and that makes my heart happy. Um, and yes, I did listen to that track this week to make sure that I had that story correct. But 27 years later, I still had that story correct, which tells me a lot about how little I have put in my brain, apparently, in the last 27 years. Uh, but uh, on that album as well, at the beginning of a song uh, that can best be described, I suppose, um, as some combination of a breathy rap and 90s ballad, which is a terrible way to describe a song, but I really have no better uh, description than that of this song called What If I Stumble <laughs> by Noah. What If I Stumble. The, uh, I, yeah, breathy rap is a weird term, but you just, you'll have to go look it up. What If I Stumble, DC Talk. Very, very mid-90s song. But at the beginning of that, there's this quote that I had memorized long before I ever knew who had said it. It turns out that it was said by a theologian and author who was quite popular in the 80s and 90s named Brennan Manning. And here's what he said. He said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. This is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. The last couple of years in our world have accelerated a number of trends that were already happening slowly, but got sped up by everything that we've been through. Technological advancements, political divisions, people movement. And one of those movements of people has been people moving away from the church. Not because Jesus doesn't have something to say to the moment that we're in, I don't think most of them are really moving away from Jesus. They're moving away from the church because they've watched church people acknowledge Jesus with their words and their flags and then deny him with their actions and their attitudes. And our world is, I think, rightly sick of it. In the words of DC Talk from a different track three decades ago, what have we become? In a world degenerating, what have we become? Speak your mind. Look out for yourself. The answer to it all is a life of wealth. Grab all you can because you live just once. You got the right to do whatever you want. Don't worry about others or where you came from. 
For decades now, at least, the world has been watching Christian leaders have very public falls from grace. And the public scandals simply don't match the gospel that we're trying to proclaim. Now you are likely not a public figure that millions of people are watching. But you are the personal expression of Jesus to your family, your neighbors, your coworkers. You are the personal expression of Jesus that they experience, that the people around you that God has called you to love experience every day. So here's how Peter one of the leaders of the early church expresses that to the, the early church. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4. You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. In other words, the glory of God that the Jewish people believed was in the temple in Jerusalem. They believed that his life, his presence, his glory not only resided in the temple, but was reflected in the majesty of the temple. And Peter says it is moved through what Jesus Christ has done. Part of the story of Jesus's death for us is that the curtain that separated the people from the presence of God was torn in two and God's spirit broke into the world. And Peter says, God's glory is no longer in a temple, in a place. God's glory, God's spirit is living in you. That God chose you to demonstrate his splendor and holiness. That's not just true for them, that's true for us. God chose you to demonstrate his splendor and his holiness. Rather than the majesty and the beauty of a building, God's spirit is displayed through the beauty and brokenness and grace of people like you and me, which is intimidating and scary. So a reminder that the story that we're trying to tell is the story of God's goodness and majesty and grace not of how amazing we are. And the best way to tell God's story of grace is to tell the difference that it made for us and how he met us in our brokenness and our faults. And in so doing, God chose you to demonstrate his splendor and holiness. So then Peter makes some references to the Jewish scriptures, the, the Old Testament in our Bible. He says, as the scriptures say, I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem. Okay, so you take that temple image, right? We're, we're a building. Uh, we're, we're talking about a building. I'm placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem, chosen for great honor, and anyone who trusts in him, now we're not talking about a building, we're talking about Jesus. He's the cornerstone. Anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Yes, you who trust him recognize the honor God has given him. But for those who reject him, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And... He is the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they do not obey God's word, and so they meet the fate that was planned for them. May I suggest 
that if you proclaim to follow Jesus with your life, either Jesus will be the foundation of your growth or he will be the rock that you trip and fall over. Those are the options. That if you say, I'm following Jesus with my life, I am a Christian, I am a believer, I, I, I need the world to know about God's grace, I'm following Jesus wherever he's leading me. Either Jesus becomes the foundation for your growth or the rock, the cornerstone that you will trip over and fall on your face. <laughs> Those are the options, foundation or tripping hazard. Now, Peter believes that he is writing to people who have accepted the message and grace of Jesus, who are building their lives on that foundation. So he says in verse nine, but you are not like that. For you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. This is the truth that Brennan Manning was reflecting on in that quote from earlier, that what we believe will not be known by what we say, but by what we show. What we believe will not be known by what we say, but by what we show. And maybe it would be more accurate to say that what we believe will be known, will be witnessed by other people, by how our words and our actions match up with what we say we believe. Because this isn't like show like, well, I'm going to post some things on Facebook or Instagram that show that I'm a Christian. This is like, hey, I say I believe this thing. And then when the crisis hits, when my friend is in need, when it's time to step up to what I believe for whatever reason, when I have to walk through a hard time holding on to my faith, it's in those moments and what we show, what we demonstrate in those moments that tell other people what we believe. We live in a world whose uh, hypocrisy radar is all turned up to high. To the point that I think we want to find other people who are hypocritical so we can judge them and not feel so bad about our own hypocrisy. We're looking for this. We're looking for people's words and actions to not match. So we can say what we believe all we want. We can post what we believe all we want. We can shout it from the mountaintops. We can paste it to our cars. What people are looking for is when the crisis moments hit, when the rubber has to meet the road, do you show what you believe? Are you demonstrating the goodness of God? I used to tell youth leaders all the time that they don't care what you know until they know that you care. And that's not just true for teenagers, that's true for all of us. People don't want to hear what you have to say about them, about what you believe, until they know that you are doing so out of your love for them. Now, our words do absolutely matter. What we say is also vital. But it's more vital to the world that our words and our actions match and that they match the light of Christ. Now, much of the public condemnation of Christian actions in the last few decades 
has not necessarily had anything to do with the church, although for sure there has been plenty of the church looking bad. But so much of the public condemnation, especially I would say over the last couple of years, has been not just how Christians engage as a church, but of Christian engagement with politics. No arena of our society is more public than our politics. So then it seems to me to be worth asking the question and doing our best to answer the question, how should a Christian engage in politics? Now, a couple of caveats before you either roll your eyes or tune me out. One, this is a very different question than how should a Christian vote? I'm not particularly interested in telling you how you should vote on any given issue, partly because neither is scripture. I, for a long time, I suppose, have tried to shy away from uh, any talking about politics whatsoever from up here and believe that we just shouldn't. We're not a political organization. It's not what we do. But I've become convinced that if we are going to be people who follow Jesus every day, that that's going to include how we follow Jesus into the politics of our world. and been convinced that we then need to talk about it because Fox News and MSNBC are going to teach us how to be angry, but they're not going to teach us how to follow Jesus. That's not their goal, not what they're about. The goal of the New Testament writers, on the other hand, was to teach the early church how to follow Jesus in every arena of life, family, marketplace, and government, so Peter points out the disobedience in those who stumble, as we read, but then again, verse nine. But you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, but now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. As we've talked about before, we are temporary residents. Another New Testament writer named Paul used the phrase citizens of heaven. That we have stepped into the eternal life of Jesus and that this is a temporary residence for that life. That we belong to something more than to this world. Now, some have taken this as permission then to just not engage in the world around us at all. To say, look, I am a citizen of heaven. I just don't touch or mess with anything going on in this world. But for followers of Jesus, who were told, as we'll talk about more in a little bit, that one of our primary tasks is to love our neighbor, we can't simply recuse ourselves from engaging in the world around us. And Peter and Paul and the writers of the New Testament assume that their people are engaging in the world around them. That's just assumed. This isn't a question of engagement that Peter's trying to raise here. This is a question of identity. 
Peter says that we are God's very own possession, that while we once had no identity, now we are God's people. Our identity is in God, far above, far above everything else. Our identity is in God, above our identity as a mother or father, a husband or wife, son, daughter, brother, sister, Republican or Democrat, libertarian or communist, even American. Our identity is in God, far above everything else. We belong to the kingdom of God, not the kingdoms of this world. And we are called to help spread the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is God's light and God's mercy breaking through into a world of judgment and darkness. And that is the kingdom that we belong to. And that is the kingdom that we step out to spread. And while God may choose to do that spreading through America or any other country as he might will, I do want to be really clear. America is not the kingdom of God. Are not the same thing. And thank God for that because we are too messed up <laughs> and too opposed to grace to show off the beauty of God's goodness and grace. Now, you may line up with a particular political platform, and that's great. You will not find a particular political platform that I am aware of, unless there is some small one in our country that I still know about. You will not find a political platform that lines up with everything scripture teaches us to line our lives up with. Whether we're talking about how we treat life, how we treat the foreigners and the poor, how we love our neighbor, how we view other people, how we are to sacrifice ourselves as Jesus did and lay our lives down as he set an example for us, you will not find a political platform that in every way lines up with scripture. And that's okay, that's okay. But when it comes down to a moment where you have to decide whether you're going to feel a certain way, act a certain way, treat people a certain way because of your political platform or because of scripture, this is the document that guides our life. That we've said we're following Jesus, which means we're following his guidebook for us. Not a platform, not a constitution, but scripture. That this is how we are led. This is the guidebook for the journey that we are on. This, by obeying this, by following the example laid out in here by Jesus, that is how we see the kingdom of God break through in our world. God has called you to a new identity. And you can't mark your identity by the identities of this world any more than light can identify as darkness. He has called you out of darkness and into his light. And he has given you his mercy. And so we demonstrate his light and his character by reflecting that mercy. And if your politics lack mercy... They fall short of the character of God. If your politics lack mercy, they fall short of the character of God. Now, we live in an era, like many eras before us, this is not new to us, we live in an era of take no prisoners politics. 
where we have to win whatever the cost is. The ends justify the means. We have to take power in this world, no matter who we have to run over or what it costs them. As a popular political figure said last Christmas, we've turned the other cheek. And I get it. I get the biblical language, sort of, but, but it's gotten us nothing, okay? It's gotten us nothing. And you can say that your policies have Christian value all you want. And you can quote all the Bible verses you want. But if your politics lack love and light and mercy for your enemies, then they don't match the character of God. If you forget that the people you're talking about, the people that you are policying against, whether they are somebody that no one will ever hear of or a famous politician, if you forget that the people you're talking about are people, not objects, not some political caricature, but people, you will lose mercy, you will lose compassion. If your politics lack light and love and mercy for your enemies, then you are not demonstrating the character of God. And that is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Now we justify a lack of mercy in situations where we are convinced that we need to win. We have to. And recently, the rhetoric of Christians in politics has been that we need to win, that we have to maintain control so that we can keep God in our society, that we have to maintain power so that God can have power in our world. Like somehow God's hands are tied behind his back unless we have the power and status that we want. And we've talked about this fall, that our testimony as everyday people following Jesus every day it's not about our power or our wisdom or our accomplishments, but it's about God's grace and God's power and God's wisdom. We talked a couple weeks ago as we were talking about the idea of following, that following implies some trust and that our desire to hold on to control in our personal lives as we're following Jesus shows off a lack of trust in the one that we're following. That if we have this desire to hold on to control, to be the one in the lead, to not just follow Jesus wherever he's taking us, that that demonstrates a lack of trust. Is our insatiable desire for control in our politics really any different? Our desire for power and influence and status reflects the desires of this world, not the beauty of the kingdom. So I want to read verse 11 again. He says, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. I'd like to submit that our desire for power and control and for the ability to do whatever we want are exactly the desires that Peter is warning the early church 
to stay away from and avoid. So part of how a Christian engages in politics is we reject the draw of power, control, and other desires of this world. We reject the draw of power and control and other desires of this world. Now, I do want to be clear that I'm not saying that engaging in politics, that voting for your candidate, that getting in debates, that wanting a country run with biblical wisdom is bad. None of that is bad. In fact, it's all good. And if you are called to politics, please, by all means, follow God into that calling. I fully believe that God will work through the people that he calls, including into places of government and politics for whatever that may look like for you. And and we'll talk more about that next week. What I'm saying is that in every engagement in politics, every conversation, every vote, every campaign, the Jesus follower should demonstrate the character and desires of God. God does not need our power and status. He's got plenty of both himself. What he is calling us to do is to walk in the example of Christ in all of our interactions. To walk in the example of Christ and show others his goodness. And so, Peter says, pay particular attention to how you show God's goodness to the unbelievers around you. Verse 12. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. And unbelieving is most of our country at this point. Statistically, fewer than half of people would say even out loud that they are following Jesus, let alone be actually following him. This is most Americans, our unbelieving neighbors. I was talking to somebody from uh, our district office uh, down in Portland. I mean, he was asking how many people in Cowlitz County Uh, are are Jesus-following people. I said, well, the one statistic I saw uh, was about 33%. um, So one out of every three-ish. And he was surprised uh, that that number was that high because in the Pacific Northwest, that's a particularly high number. Unbelieving neighbors is the vast majority of the people that we will be engaging with in our society at this point. The goal is that they give glory to God, not to you or to your platform or to your politician. The goal is that they experience the goodness of God, not that you win. So here's the thing. Your vote will communicate a lack of love to someone. Now, I know most people are not going to know how you vote, but if they were to find out your vote If you think about this in any sort of semi-controversial even issue, your vote will communicate a lack of love to someone. Couple of examples. Again, not saying any of this is the way you should vote or shouldn't vote, or that one of these is more loving than the other. But if you were to vote to ban all abortions, that that was your hope from your candidate, you would communicate a lack of love to a woman who believed that that was her choice, not yours. If you were to vote for abortions to be legal, 
that would communicate a lack of love to a grandma who didn't want her daughter to end her grandchild's life. A less controversial one today because it's legal in most states, but still, if you were to vote for gay marriage, you would communicate a lack of love to a man who felt like you were affirming his son's sinful choices. If you were to vote against gay marriage, you would be communicating a lack of love to the ladies who live next door. Your vote will communicate, should somebody find out about it, a lack of love to somebody. Now, you may have absolutely believed you were doing the most loving thing, but it will communicate a lack of love to them. The Jesus follower is called above all else to love God and love our neighbor. When Jesus was asked what the most important commandment was, he didn't pick a political platform, although he absolutely could have. There were plenty of those in his day. He didn't say, don't murder or don't steal. He didn't pick verses and commandments about how we treat the foreigner and the poor, although all of those things are clearly important throughout Scripture. Instead, when asked, Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. In other words, God's entire platform boils down to these two things. Do we love God and we love our neighbor? So your vote will communicate a lack of love to someone. Your acts of love better make up for it. Your vote will communicate a lack of love to someone. So your actions of love should make up for it. And to say, well, I don't care what that sinner thinks. I don't care what that bigot thinks. Not one of our options. We are not called to judge the world. That's God's job. We are called to love God and love our neighbor. Love your neighbor so thoroughly, so genuinely that they would be confused if they found out how you voted. That they would be confused because I know that you actually love and care about me. Why would you vote that way? Be so loving, so genuinely caring for your neighbor who you know disagrees with you. That they will be convinced that you love them despite how you vote. And in being so convinced that they might experience the goodness of God. Anger and aggression and dismissing the people who disagree with you. That is the ways of this world. But you are not like that. For you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he has called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. We will pick it up there next week. So as the worship team comes up, I'm going to pray for us.
Father God, I am overwhelmed and a little intimidated that you would choose me, you would choose us, you would choose broken everyday people to demonstrate your goodness, your splendor, your holiness. God, you know, and I know that the only story I really have to tell is of how your grace has changed my life. The only story that we really have to tell is that you're good and that you're faithful like we sang about. That whatever the world throws at us, however bad things begin to look, that you are good and you are with us. God, would you do whatever you have to do in us so that you can shine through us the way that you want to, so that people can come to know your goodness, know your love and grace for them. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for checking out our podcast. You can learn more or connect with us online at easthills.org.